And welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin Anna, the Eagle Strong Voice. It's November 20th, and of course, this is the show and the movement that doesn't let anyone turn any of us around. We're here every week as part of the Global Republic Alliance movement to fighting the corporate global police state wherever it manifests its ugly head. Today we're going to remember one of the great warriors, one of our great leaders in the struggle, a grassroots leader, like any true leader, is there not to organize people, but to spark and inspire people's own light so they can organize themselves and make their own revolution. This show has always been for those of you who cannot be content to live alongside a system of misery and oppression of others. It's for those of you who aren't satisfied with tinkering with an evil system, but have to uproot it and end it. And it's for those of you whose vision and dreams take flesh because they're more real than this sick, blood-soaked lie we call society. Well, you know, if you're like that, you're part of this new society, struggling to be born in the shell of the old, like a mother in labor. And a mother of all of us today, I want to talk about my good friend, Kolya Lafayette Clark. She died on November 4th, age 82. She was one of the grassroots catalysts of the civil rights movement, Selma, Alabama, and other places. And it's really gratifying. I couldn't make her funeral in New York because of my own situation. But I watched it online. It was really beautiful to watch all the family members and everybody stand up and remember her. And really great news that the city of Selma, Alabama, is actually named September 16th Kolya Lafayette Clark Freedom Holiday. And Charles Bonner, one of the students that was involved with her in that movement, gave a beautiful description of her role in that building that movement long before Martin Luther King and the TV camera showed up that fed so many people and continues to feed all of us. Well, today we're going to do that. We're going to do that by playing part of an excerpt I did. Uh, back in 2017, Kolya and I, we met actually in New York. She invited me to come on her Manhattan Neighborhood Network TV station. We did a lot of great interviews. And uh, this one is from February 2017. And she talks about 40 minutes in the show. It's going to be her talking about what it means to be a grassroots leader and how that movement came about. As she said, you know, some people are uh, part of the struggle because they choose to be. Some of it sometimes because they're forced into the struggle. She was born into the struggle, being poor and black in the Mississippi Delta. And she always made that point with me and others. And, you know, for somebody any of us who have been involved in a hopeless struggle against impossible odds. Someone like Kolya is water in the desert because she accepted me and the story. I remember when we used to talk about the crimes against children, the crimes of genocide and mass murder that still go on today that I documented over so many years and fought to prosecute with so many other people. A lot of them gone now, too. She would sit there, and I remember she'd look into the TV camera and said, Are you listening, New York? Are you really hearing? Or what are you going to do now? Now that you know the devil's in the church, you've got to get that devil out of the church. And she would always make this impassioned plea. I think it was Martin Luther King who said, at the end of the day, we will remember not the lies of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. But Kolya was a friend who was never silent. And she was a beautiful woman, a great friend, and we want to honor her today. And fortunately, next week, one of her children, one of her daughters, is going to come on live November 27th, and talk about her memories, how the struggle continues in her spirit. So please tune in next week as well. And 
We're going to uh, also include in the show today some updates from our struggle. Also, people still in prison, like Sigmund Mikkelbost, still in a Danish prison for two months because he refused to drive with a driver's license. He stood on his common law rights. They made an example of him. Now they're shipping him back to Norway. He's a targeted political prisoner. But we have people all over the world rallying his, in his defense. And it's that people power and soul power together that is unbeatable. So we that's one of the ways we're we're going to honor him and Coley and all those who really never stop fighting. And that's what this show is about, remembering those who never surrender, because that's what's needed. This show has chronicled for the last 25 or more years the movement, first starting in Canada, to expose the genocide of Indigenous children, then growing into a larger movement, exposing that same genocide all over the world, common law court movement, and finally setting up our own common law republics outside the fake governmental system, the corporate system. And that movement is really sparked by people exactly like Collier Clark. You know, it's, it's been said there's nothing new under the sun except the history you don't know about. And we're going to hear some of that history today because our struggle is a continuum. And Collier Lafayette Clark is the embodiment of that. And before we start, um, I wanted to uh, remind folks that this is not a program where we're trying to get people to go to their base impulses. Like, you know, a lot of the white folks who are involved in this, like me, began originally with a sense of, well, guilt, or we don't know the right to speak because we've been part of the oppressor society. Well, that's never uh, an issue for people on the ground struggling. We realize that this strikes at all of us, and that's something we have to unite on, on a new basis, and that's really the notion of a common law republic. You're listening to this, you're committed, you are part of that new society, whether you're black, white, anything. But we have to earn our right to liberty. We've got to stop our complicity in a system that's still murdering others, and that's something that we always hold up on this program. So... We're going to uh, get to that, and to remind folks who are listening for the first time, you can see a lot of that evidence and the books I've written about it and the documentary films at murderbydecree.com. And the website of the Republic of Canada, formerly the criminal crown jurisdiction called the Dominion of Canada, you can see at republicofcanada.org, that's K-N-A-A-T-A, Canada, Mohawk language word meaning where the people sit as one around the campfire. And that's our vision of the new republic in Canada, sharing the land together as was meant in the original natural law. And I remember, uh, I think it was, who was it who said this? Was it Frederick Douglass, I think? When rulers have inverted their function and wickedly tread down the inalienable rights of man and woman, I know no ruler but God and no law but natural justice. And we stand on that natural justice on this show, folks. Murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org. Write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. Now we're going to sh- go to this clip with Sister Kolya for the next 40 minutes or so. I'll be back uh, in the last 10 minutes to give some updates and announcements. Here's our interview with our lovely Sister Kolya. So without further ado, I want to get right to our Sister Kolya. Kolya, can you hear me? I can hear you very, very clearly, Kev. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you, sister? How's it going? Oh, man, I tell you, it's been a long day, but it's been a fruitful day, so it's going well. Well, you know, I've been really plugging you with everyone I know, and 
today's it's just a delight to be back with you you know i know we've done tv interviews on uh mnn tv in new york city but um folks may not know a lot about you i wondered if you could just take a little bit of time to say who you are what your background is how you got into the struggle well i come out of the state of mississippi let's start with that that puts you in the struggle the time you're born Mm-hmm. especially now in which I came into the world in the 1940s. So Mississippi is home. Um, I grew up in a state of oppression. It was literally a state of oppression. Um, that people talk about now as if it was 100 years ago, but actually it's not that far back. And as the clock turns these days, we are entering a phase of history that I'm very familiar with, and that is the racist and sexual and ugly violence that marked my early years. I started out in a family, though, that was a resistance-oriented family. Uh, so I grew up with a, with a family that, that talked about never bending to evil. And that's, yeah. you know, that's, that, that's really literally my beginning. I grew up in a family that was multicultural in the sense that we were primarily Africans who came in during the enslavement era. But we were also married the indigenous populations of the state. And, of course, there's always the rape that came from the European side. So I grew up in kind of this multicultural environment in a very unique area of Mississippi, actually, because the area that I grew up in uh, was the Europeans and the Germans, and more Germans would come with time and when the wars would come, when the war, World War II came. But there were the Germans, and there was the British, and there was the, the Dutch, and there was the Scot. Very few Irish, there were Jews, very few, very, very few. But there were a lot of um, Iranians and Arabs and, and these other groups that were in the area. I'm still not clear why. Uh, so that's, that, that kind of a growing up in that kind of a cultural milieu creates for you a unique way of looking at the world. Yeah. So I got a chance to see the world rather than just uh, the European uh, conceptualization that was before me. I got a chance to see the rest of the world as well. Right. Um, I grew up in a large family these days. In my day, 10 children in a household was considered a medium family, an average, right. an average family. <laughs> right. I had an uncle with 21, one with 17, and an aunt with 14, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we well, were, we were that, considered the small family. Was that but a hard I grew family up in a family of men. I had eight yeah. brothers yeah. and a sister, of course. Like most folk in my time period, it was a male-headed household, as were most families in the areas in which I grew up. In fact, in the nation, probably, they tell a lie about it being different, but it wasn't. Um, so I grew up very healthily in one sense, yeah. but I grew up in a poor family. So we were itinerant cotton pickers in the late summer, early fall. We would go to the Mississippi Delta. So I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, which is central Mississippi. But we went to the Delta every fall to pick cotton. We'd be up there. I got a chance to see another world that I had not seen before. And this was intense oppression. I mean, really intense. In fact, the houses that we lived in as cotton-picking families were more often than not regular homes for the for the black resident who was moved out so that we would have a place to stay to pick the planter's cotton. And then we would return back to Jackson, and these poor people who spent a whole summer and were well, part of the summer and, and all of the fall without accessing the real income unless they came to pick cotton. And if they did, it was uh, far less than what we were paid to pick the cotton. But you can see the pitching of two groups against each other, the so-called yeah. hill Negroes against the bottom 
which is the Delta Negroes. Yeah. Uh, that was a very clear issue. But I also picked the, it was the fortune of being able to see the other America that nobody talks about, and that is poor white America. Because often they were in the fields with us, picking cotton side by side with nothing, and I mean literally nothing. And, you know, it's just a, it's a time of great poverty. But because my parents organized so well, and because we were always landed from the Africans who came out of slavery, and my father's father was a slave, had been a slave, um, they bought land immediately after slavery ended at 50 cents, 75 cents, a dollar an acre, and accumulated quite a bit of it, actually. So I grew up in this landed family, but despite that, uh, the common mechanization meant that they did not have the equipment to farm the land with. It became very, very expensive. And, of course, uh, the federal government, uh, through uh, the Department of Agriculture, would not provide blacks with loans. Right. So we didn't have access to loans. So we left the land and came to Jackson. But that is the way I grew up. That is the right. world in which I grew up, colored school and all. Um, and if I had to do it all over again, I would take the separation. I would, because it was a wonderful uh, social and cultural experience growing up in, a, in in these very huge communities without class. There was no yeah. class. Everybody in it, because we were the colored people or the Negro people, everybody in it uh, had the same uh, class status even if you right. had lots of lots of money and you were a millionaire, you had the same status mm-hmm. as other Africans living with you in, in, in within the community. Uh, the sad part about it is that the indigenous populations were totally oppressed. Uh, we would see them sometimes that would walk through the streets, um, and they were separated from from those the, the mixed groups of indigenous. So my family, right. and my mother's people, all the mixed groups, but there's a huge separation between the two. Um, who are they calling? Who are the indigenous? What groups the indigenous were Choctaw, yeah. Chickasaw, Cherokee, um, Blackfoot, I think it is, Natchez. Um, let's see about all these groups. Natchez, oh, 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 man, man, no, 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 forgetting all my indigenous groups. It's a yeah. whole battery of, of indigenous yeah. populations. Right. Um, my mother had a piece that she would sing uh, to the Cretan Nation. She would sing this piece, you know, Choctaw, Creek Nation's going to shine the night, shine the night. Shine by the light of the moon. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up, Creek Nation gonna shine. <laughs> so the Creek were there. So there's right. loads of, and then there were mixtures of Maya and other groups that were coming in from Mexico, along with what we call Mexicans today. Right. All, all these populations, East Indians, of course, were a small part of the community. Right. Tell me, uh, Carly, how how did you take the step to be involved in the civil rights movement? How did that happen for you? I was born in it. My grandfather and father brought my father into the farm labor movement. Even though they did not live in counties that housed farm labor movements, they would go, people were so bent on change. And I guess some of the populism from the 1890s, early 1900s, also flowed over into the 20th century. They were hell bent on going to to the next door to to the neighboring counties to struggle with those folk around the issues of, of farm labor and organizing farm labor. Right. It was a huge movement, and my father was a part of that along with, well, my mother's father and mother's grandfather. So I grew up with a spirit of knowing that we had to, one, change 
the popular voting system. So we were told that, you know, you had to grow up, you pay your poll tax, and we were required to pay a poll tax, had to be paid on time, and that uh, that would give you entry into being able to demand the right to vote. So both my mother and father was registered voters. So I was born in this space where I was told that I had to fight. In fact, I was required to fight. My father worked, and my mother actually helped to organize. The community helped to organize us, and it was a demand on us that we be a part of the struggle. So when the civil rights movement of the 60s came, I was already a part of it. I mean, it was nothing new for me. I knew that I had a job to do, so I came in. I went to college in 59. The fall of 59, and we formed the first NACP chapter on campus. That did not come from me, actually. The brothers who were coming home from the Korean War, the older students, were interested in forming this first college chapter for the state of Mississippi. And as we prepared in 59, 60 came real quick. Because <laughs> yeah. that was September, and it's February 1 of 60s when the four young people in North Carolina will take a seat at the lunch counter and change the way in which we looked at the world in the South, because it would be caught up in this massive first sit-in movement. Sit-in movement would be followed by um, just mass mobilizations of all sorts across the South. And that meant that people were going to sit in at libraries and lunch counters and wade in into the, in the waters and everything else. Uh, so that is uh, the movement that I entered, but I didn't enter it, uh, in other words, new. No. It was not new. I became a special assistant to the lead man for NHP for the state of Mississippi, Megger Wiley Evers. Okay. And you knew you worked with Megger, did you? Yeah, I was a special assistant for the state. And a really um, powerful, brilliant man. And he taught me other, you know, techniques for organizing and another way also of looking at the world. I got a chance to look at the world through the emerging nationalist movement because Megger really believed it. Uh, in the Kenyan approach from Jomo Kenyatta out of um, Kenya, that you had to fight for what you got and you had to pay any price to do it. Now, do you think so, that's why uh, Medgar was killed? One of the reasons. no question in my mind that Medgar Wiley Evers was killed because, unlike all of the other civil rights leaders, Medgar Wiley Evers was one committed to a state and he didn't try to be committed to the whole region. He committed himself to the state of Mississippi. He was committed to organizing from the ground up, maids and, 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 and whoever else was around, and lawn workers or whoever. He was committed to organizing from the bottom up, and he did that. But he organized the state, and that state um, to, to this day has more elected officials than any other state in the South, and yet not just any other state in the South, any other state in the nation. In fact, Mississippi has more elected officials than all of the States combined. If you combine the, the, the elected officials across the U.S., you won't have the elected officials that you get out of the state of Mississippi, black elected officials. So, Coley, this is really important because, you know, I never knew that about Medgar Evers. And, uh, you know, in other words, he was at, he was working for self-government. He wasn't looking oh, yeah. to, the, to, the, to the authorities. He was empowering people on the ground. Yeah, you got to be empowered on the ground. If not, you don't have a base. You've yep. got to develop a base. And that base cannot be a fly-by-night base. In other words, you cannot uh, mobilize folk for the sake of mobilization. There comes a time when you may need to mobilize. But you mobilize from a well-grounded, well-organized base. Yep. Otherwise, you have nothing to come home to. And anything can run in and run out. 
So if we look at the major movements, the mobilizing movements, we looked at uh, America's Georgia, if you look at Birmingham, Alabama, uh, you begin to look around the nation at these movements, they leave nothing behind. Right. People come in, they're mobilized for a moment, and then they disappear and you have nothing. Well, you the media all over up. again, and that's very difficult to do. Once yeah. the people have come through a mobilizing experience and, and it kind of falls flat in your face, it is very difficult then to come back to those same people and say, well, you know, we've got to pick up and organize this. Well, you know, the official version, you know, how the media would come in and Martin Luther King would show up and they'd all be focused on him and then he'd leave. Did you find kind of a conflict there? Uh, was there, well, there was more than a we, conflict, and that was yeah. a conflict with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was very much like Megas organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conflict was that they were we, we were committed with SNCC to organizing a base. That meant that you organize a new leadership. Whose right. leadership? Not our leadership. We were catalysts. You organize the local leadership. So you got the Fannie Lou Hamers, the right. Victoria Grays, and all of these other wonderful people on the ground, and people who were already there organized, because unions had already come through with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And so many yeah. of the people that we worked with were already organized and organized in, because they had been trained by these outsiders uh, with yeah. the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. That's also true for some of the postal workers, and there were a few places in the state where there was blacks who were connected to postal workers. So Amzie Moore, out of the Mississippi Delta, was already organizing because he had been well-trained. So what we have happening is is that you have, as an organizer, you're going to produce the, the leadership, the natural leadership, the earthbound leadership of a people, and they become the leaders. We will take some of the pain that's required to build that. In other words, some of the beatings and the shootings at and whatever else happens and the going to jail will be by the catalytic agents who were there, and we were the catalytic agents. So you've got to organize from the ground up. You've got to have the people themselves represent the people themselves so that you have a natural base, and therefore you can have a living movement, and it will live on. Right. Well, you're showing so well how one movement feeds into another. This is like a real organic thing. It wasn't just uh, brought in by people from the outside or by any means. But, uh, oh, no. No, no, by know. no means. And it, it wasn't new. No. Uh, if anybody that takes a, cl- a close look at what happened, especially in Mississippi, which was the wealthiest, in one sense of the wealthiest, cotton state, and because we had long state cotton, and so Mississippi got to be very popular in the Natchez region and so so forth. But when this trick called Indian Slavery came, and it was a trick, mm-hmm. because it really was a public industrial capitalist needing to expand their base. And yep. to expand that base, they had to get rid of the old South. It had to yep. die. So and they, they just uh, make it legal to be slaves inside American prisons, which is 13th oh, Amendment. Oh, not just prisons. You were yep. really a slave on the land, because remember now, when you are a slave, but I would say this, when you are a slave... They feed you, they house you, they clothe you. It may be inadequate and insufficient, but you don't provide that. Mm-hmm. But if I tell you you're free and you had nothing, I mean you literally had only what you had on your back. You had no land, you had no access to resources for your children, you had nothing. We came out of slavery with nothing, and nobody tells that story. We had no. nothing but what was on our backs. Yeah. Now what do you do? You go back right. to the plantation and beg missus to let you back on. Yeah. That is mm. what you do. In the meanwhile, through the Freedmen's Bureau, they're rounding up all these black children in the name of 
uh, that they were that, that the kids were left abandoned. They also rounded up tens of thousands of white children in the name of abandonment. What do they do with them? They take them to Mrs. and the plantation, and they tell you the lie that Mrs. is going to educate them. So Mrs. has got what? Free labor. Right. Slavery is over. Yep. You are now trying to find some way of taking care of yourself, and if you got, if you've been able to reassemble a family, you had a family, you've now got to figure out how you're going to feed and help your family. So it's black males who go out and make contracts. They can't read. All right. right. Somebody says you to show up here on X X day, and you better not be late. And let's say it's the fifteenth of January that you have to show at Mr. Jolie's place to do whatever he wants you yeah. you to do for that date. But it happens to be a cold spirit, so uh, the appearance to hit. You have nothing. You have no. You don't have shoes. You got to wrap yourself up whatever you can wrap your feet with. You mm-hmm. can't make it there. The water is high because it's flooded and it's cold and it's icy. So you get there five days late. Yeah. And the sheriff is waiting on you. You're going to jail. Yeah. For violation of contract. Now you work for Mr. Jolie for thirty days for free. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is literally the way it happened. This is not. This yeah, is, yeah. This, this is this is not a lie. This is not a game. This is actually what happens. It's all planned. You have no, well, nothing. They can't plan Mother Nature, but they no, understand no. it's winter season. Yeah. They understand that you don't have anything. So now these black males are pulled into a pyramid system. Well, that that explains why there was this huge earthquake building. And uh, I, I want to get back to the movement. What you what you saw on the ground. Tell us some anecdotes. What was it like organizing? Tell us about some of these people like Fannie Lou Hammer and the others. Well, let's, let's do Fannie Lou because I think she's one of the most beautiful women that I've ever met. I got a phone call. Of, I was down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where we've been organizing uh, Forest County. And that Hattiesburg is in Forest County, which is south of Jackson, about 80 miles. Um, and we were down there organizing because for the first time a federal tribunal were meeting, was meeting in the state of Mississippi uh, for the first time in, since, since the end of Reconstruction. And so we were down there organizing against a registrar who had refused to even register blacks with Phi Beta Kappa degrees. And it was always saying they couldn't pass the literature test. So because this was a unique experience, and the government had looked at it, all these people who were well-educated, PhDs and others, um, and they couldn't get registered to vote. So we've been down there organizing uh, that county to make sure that there was a presence for this federal tribunal that was meeting in Mississippi for the first time in, 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 since Reconstruction. I got called that we were, it was early September, that we were to come to the Mississippi Delta. And so, uh, no, no, this is still, this is, no, this is August, to come to Mississippi Delta. So we head for the Delta for a little town called Ruleville, Mississippi. Well, we had headquarters at, up at, um, in Bolivar County, um, at Cleveland, Mississippi. But we would be next door this time in Indianola, Mississippi. And I don't know whether you've heard it since the James O. Eastland. Oh, yeah. Well, this is our James O. Eastland. This is the man who's screaming the yellow plague, <laughs> uh, but also the man who's helping to organize um, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which was designed to spy on us, keep up with us, and also to spread as much madness as possible through black agents. He owned a big plantation too, didn't he, that senator? Oh, huge plantation. That was that. that but this is a his county is a county that houses parchment, 
and an argument could be made that Eastland owned Parchman. <laughs> this is the mm. state's biggest state prison for the state of Mississippi. Right. <laughs> known for its ruthlessness and, and violence. So is that, uh, where you met, uh, is that where you met Fannie Lou? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to Fannie Lou now. i got to get you there. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get me there. I'm coming. <laughs> so we drive this uh, through Jackson all the way up into the Delta, through this little small town. And we pick up Dory Latin on the way out of Tougaloo College. We were the two female uh, state workers for the Student Abound Coordinating Committee. So we pick her up on the way, and we all we ride up in this little small town and uh, sit in there in a little small church house. Uh, is about, I'd say, 30 people. Uh, but surrounding them, going around and around, a four-block, like a four-block square area of cotton fields, is uh, one, the brother to one of the men that had killed uh, Emmett Till. He's a police officer for the, he's one of the two police officers for the town. The other person is a, is a mayor who is a mayor and sheriff and everything else for the town. He has his big dog and a shotgun. And they're driving around and around this little church house. And we come into this minister who is trying to be brave. You can see this minister is trying to be brave. But we could hear these people singing. And um, as we get in, we see this small group sitting up in front, about, I'd say, 30 people in all, spread out across a small church that might have held 100, 120 people. And our job is to keep them in their seats because we're going to take these people to Indianola, Mississippi, James O. Eastland's uh, uh, headquarters for <laughs> for, this, for for this county to get right. them registered to vote, and this sisters, this is the three of them are just singing, and so uh, we have to preach them, keep them in the seat. The bus was late, two hours late at that, because they had struggled getting it from Bolivar County into Sunflower County into where we were, which was typical and normal. We always knew that they had roadblocks and everything else to block out. Our movement, but I watched this one woman who just seemed to be a firebrand of her own, and they were singing this song. Uh, hear a little when I feel a little lighter burning. Hear a little wheel turning. Just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. <laughs> so this just a little talk with Jesus. We get on the bus with them. We get them down to Indianola, and we wait all day, and there is no sign of a registrar. The town is located in a little square. We had this 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 is the county seat for the county. It's located in a little square in Indianola. And Indianola, for those who are listening who know anything about the blues, this is the home of B.B. King and, uh, and, and many of the other great blues musicians really? that we have for the state. Wow. So, <laughs> so we're down here in blues territory. Yeah, yeah. And a blues musician in sight. There's no black folk in sight. Black folk are men making sure they stay, they stay out of our way and away from obviously what is now very negative white power. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, around 4 o'clock, we noticed that these people all got these newspapers. And they had one little bench and right in front of the little courthouse. So one person is sitting there, one white man, with his little newspaper, and keeps looking at the newspaper and looking up at us. Another was on, had one, the little courthouse had two stories. And it's the only two-story building, the only, tallest thing in miles. <laughs> so on top of there is a man standing up looking down on us. He's got a newspaper. So Dora, who I always said, told Dora, I said, Dora, you ain't so bright. Dora decided to take the man's newspaper that was sitting in front. He said, give me this paper. <laughs> so she takes this newspaper from this gentleman. And he sat there. He was just, just like we were superstars, right? 
he sat there, he didn't say a word, he was, I mean, and then when we said, well, what is this? He just started to try to explain. But um, it had front pages that the communists had taken over. And we were all communists. And it had the pictures of Bob Moses and Fannie Lou Hamer, not Fannie Lou Hamer, but Ella Baker and Ann and Carl Braden, who had been out of Kentucky, uh, known for their struggles uh, around they were communists out of, out, of, out of Kentucky, but they were known for their struggles around organizing blacks in the South. So these people are all on the front page, along with Diane and Jim Bevel, who we knew quite well, and Jack O'Dell, who I will later marry. Uh, they were all on the front page. And they were, you know, just communists taking over the South. So we got to get out of here. We look up. Indianola has three highways that converge, 61, 49, and 51. And as we look up, we can see... Nothing but men in white. They didn't put the cops in blue. They were in white. Highway Patrol. Uh, we look to our left, Highway Patrol. We look to our right, Highway Patrol. All three highways are loaded with Highway Patrol. So we have to try to get out, and we did try to get out. And this is when I bring you back to Fannie Lou. We were given the task that Bob Moses always protected his female workers, and we just had two. <laughs> so he put Dorian out of the car with James Bevel and said, y'all get back to Ruleville and let the people know that we have been surrounded down here. Somehow you got to get the hell out of here. Let the people know we've been surrounded and what's happening. And, and, and yet then they began to spread the word throughout the county all that we have been overwhelmed here at the Indianola. So we do. They let us through. But as we got through and began to look back, we saw that they had surrounded the bus that was trying to get out. And Fannie Lou Hamer is on this bus. Oh. So Bevel, who was getting a lot of illness near the end of his life, and one of the most powerful organizers I know, James Bevel, he said, we're going back. So we went back, and sure enough, they let us pull all the way up on the shoulders of the road, didn't stop us, and Bevel just screaming, you know, why you have the bus? Why you have the bus? And one of the highway patrolmen turned to him and said, well, the bus is under arrest. He said, I'm not asking you about the bus. What happened about the people on the bus? They belong to the bus. So he says, well, why is the bus under arrest? It's the wrong color. <laughs> Didn't know you could put a bus under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> the bus and all this property was under arrest. Everybody was frightened. I tell you, it was a frightening moment. But then that same woman who we heard this morning, had heard it early in the morning, lit out with a new song, and she was singing, I'm going through. I'll take the way to freedom, no matter what others do. Right. I will pay the price. And it was Fannie Lou Hamer. That evening, later on, they, they kept the bus and they kept everything on the bus, <laughs> all the people on the bus. Yeah. Dora and I went on back with Bevel, dropped us back in Ruville, and we you know, went around knocking on a few little doors there was. It wasn't, it was a very small area. Letting the people know that the bus had been captured and that, you know, we needed to get together a mass meeting for the evening. Mm-hmm. Um Actually, we didn't pull off the mass meeting. The bus was set free, and Fannie Lou uh, shows up in, 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 in darkness and then walking with one of the male friends from SNCC when all of a sudden I heard this woman calling my name, and I knew that whoever was calling didn't know, had been looking at some paper and was trying to do the pronunciation, which was inaccurate. He's calling me, Miss Lytle, Miss Lytle, when I'm Liddell. So uh, oh, yeah. that Scottish Liddell and not Lytle. Scottish, yeah. Yeah, and so um, 
it was Fannie Lou Hamer, and she was crying. You could see in this little light rain, you could see the tears running down, just a tear line around, running from my eyes. And she was worried about her husband. She said they, 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 they called her the name of the plantation owner. You know, he said, put me off, put me off. But, but Pap, he's still out there. Pap, he's still out there. He won't come. He wouldn't come. But So she then explained to us that, uh, in her words, uh, they wanted her to take her registry back. Remember, she's, she's got the broken English here, so she take my take my register back. And she looked and she said, but I ain't going to take my register back. I ain't taking it back. I waited 42 years for this moment. I ain't turning back now. <clears throat> so that was the beginning for Fannie Lou that very evening. Everybody yep. came in from Bolivar County, from our main office with Bob Moses and Everybody gathered, but Dory and I, we were not allowed in this session. They used to put the Mississippians, we had to stand outside. <laughs> yeah. So these northerners uh, got fairly loose. Um, but um, that same evening, there were shots fired. They thought that Dory and I were these three young girls who were actually in the house that we were destined to have stayed in, but we didn't. So these girls were all shot. They, they lived. But Dory and I escaped because we had already been on our way back to Jackson. So that is a meeting of the, the, the one day with all of this, as quickly as I can give it to you, um, yep. Fannie Lou Hamer, a dynamic woman. Because this woman will now uh, organize the counties, not just one county, but the surrounding counties. We'd be at Cleveland, Mississippi, which is the county next door, adjacent to uh, Sunflower County, Eastlands County. And she would show up, because this is where the headquarters house was, at Amgen Moe's home, and she would show up at... And oftentimes the FBI would always come in pretending that they were looking out for us, of course. Yeah. And they'd sit around and play chess with Diane or sit around and talk while they spied us out. As <laughs> if we'd be yeah. stupid enough yeah, yeah. not to know the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they were sitting there this day, and these papers were coming out every day calling us communists. But they would come out for two whole weeks. But this day would be the last day. Fannie Lou Hammer came in in a normal, jovial way. Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody. Y'all. Oh, I'm just so thrilled. So happy, I'm a communist. And somebody said, what the fuck do you know? I'm not a communist. <laughs> she said, yeah, but I'm a communist, I'm a communist. <laughs> and the FBI sitting there, they're done red as a beast. The people who are running this newspaper are the Hederman brothers, very close bosom buddies of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Well, that afternoon, there was no more communism. No more newspaper. And it well, was it's funny, you know, happened. wasn't Fannie Lou, and, and I don't know if you were involved in uh, Freedom Democratic Party, but she led that fight at the convention, Democratic Convention in 1964. Well, there's no question about it. She would lead the fight. I just wanted to get you the, the touch of her, her beginning here with us. Yeah. She'd already been involved, though, with SCAP years ago, not SCAP, but with the, uh, with the school up in Knoxville. Yeah. Um, years ago, back, she'd been doing work. Uh, yeah. She'd been trying to get herself trained. And so we just kind of, you know, she reemerges with SNCC, with Student Advanced Coordinating Committee. On oh, the Highland Center. She worked at the, yeah, the, the Highland Center. The Highland, Highland Center, Highland yeah. Center. There, uh, yeah, Center, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she had been connected with that for years, for years mm-hmm. on and off, doing training and this and that. So this was for her an absolute opportunity to be able right. to, to live out that life. She said she waited 42 years for that moment. Yeah. She wasn't That's turning fantastic. back now. She made every word of it because she would pick up here, begin to organize everything that she could find. Now, I was out of Mississippi as of the fall of 62, where Fannie Lou will continue her work, and Dory really can talk a bit at length about having 
had a more involved experience with Fannie Lou, but she would not only continue the work, she would get involved with the creation of the Freedom Democratic Party, an idea shot forth by Charlie Cobbs, who was one of the original 16, because there were 16 of us, two females and, and 14 males, uh, operating under Bob Moses. David Dennis would come in from New Orleans. We had Bob Moses. Bevel was assigned, and his wife, because Diane got pregnant, they, they had to go to Dr. King's group. But we we operating under their leadership, and um, Fen Lu was the, the the highlight. She became like I should say the right. spotlight for the revolutionary struggle. But she wasn't alone. There were Victoria Gray, who will come from well, Southern Mississippi. There will be Annie Devine, who will come from Canton, Mississippi, where Black Power will be born, uh, right outside of Canton, on the road outside of Canton, uh, outside of Canton, um, yeah. five years or uh, four years later. Well, well, these you know, three women folks, will be the women at the National Democratic Convention in uh, New Jersey at Atlantic City. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to, to explain that to people who don't know the history. I mean, they were trying to desegregate the Democratic delegation, is that right? Well, they wanted to remove the Democratic. The, the Freedom Democratic Party was organized to unseat the Mississippi Democrats. Right. The argument was, you know, the racism. The refusal to allow blacks to not only the right to vote, but to participate in any way in the voting process. So they came here to ask that they uh, take their seats. Right. And Lyndon Johnson tried to block this moment. Yeah. And he didn't get to the press fast enough, so Fannie Lou was able to tell the story at Atlantic City, at this right. um, uh, Democratic National Convention. And the story got out to all humanity being told by her how she had suffered, what she went through in Mississippi, the serious beating that she had taken in Mississippi. Uh, that got out, and Johnson couldn't block it. He was very upset. So what right. the Democratic Party did, trying to play games with people, they didn't understand these people as sophisticated as they were, what they decided to do was um, they would give the Freedom Democratic Party a special set of seats. They'd get two seats, Right. Yeah. They'll give you two delegates. You can sit over here. Well, the party said, no, oh, we're not taking that. No. No, 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 sir. We won't And they finally got seated in 68, did they? Oh, uh, yeah, 68, it worked out. Not as Freedom Democrats. No, in 68, they, they yeah. pushed out the uh, the other, the Southern Democrats, called the Dixocrats. They were pushed out for a moment. Right. But um, by 68, you know, we've got a voting rights act. Right. You know, I Nobody can see... Nobody just paid you film. If you see the Selma film, folks, of course, that's a project organized by my first husband and I and, and some other folks. But um, that film does not include 1964. It doesn't include this fight at the Democratic National Convention. Right. Because it's, it's a whole attempt to a revisionist history piece to not present the history of that of the freedom struggle as it really... Uh, grows and evolves, uh, uh, and where we take where it took us to. And you know, today it has such relevance. You know, Coley, I can see we're going to run out of time today. I want you to come back next week and carry this on. Uh, as much, much as you need, I want to talk to Canada. Yeah, I'm excited. And you know, I want to hear about Canada, and I, and I know you got Katie there. I know I want to hear about the Algonquin, the Mohawk, and everybody else that's up there fighting against uh, the evils of Canada. I understand that we are we're twins. We're twin powers here. <laughs> well, you know, I often say, Coley, Canada's a lot more dangerous because uh, everything's hidden up here, you know. Uh, the racism yeah. is hidden. It's right beneath the surface, but uh, it's just as vicious. There's many Native people died up here as down south and more. Wow. 
So, you know, and we've talked about that on the air, you know. We have talked about it, and I, I do understand from looking at it through the African experience, especially during the enslavement era when Canada got seen as the great state of freedom when blacks were coming from the south and being able to cross into Canada because it had a little quirk law that said if you entered free, you remain free. Right. Which Canada is a slave state. Canada had slaves, both black slaves right, and slave state. aboriginal right. slaves. That's correct. The city of Halifax, Montreal, was built off slave labor. Yes. Yeah. But also the use of those Africans who crossed in, yeah. uh, in the name of freedom, they were also uh, working for little of nothing, yeah. along with many, many whites. And we're back. My sister Colia. And uh, it's funny, uh, think about her, how much I miss her and her light, but it's uh, shining even brighter nowadays. You find that when people pass on, that their spirit intensifies. If your hard mind are in the right spot with them and you don't give up. And to honor what we were just talking about, um, I want to update folks about the situation in Canada or Canada. And one of the things that we do, and, and I wanted to touch on what, Coley brought out a really important point. There's a difference between mobilizing, like protests, say, and organizing, where you stay and you actually organize people to take back their communities, set up their own, like we're doing across Canada, setting up our own republic assemblies, 12 or more people sign a charter, you can pass your own local laws, laws outlining the COVID measures, or taking back taxes in your community, or setting up schools for your own children, that kind of thing we're doing on the ground with our own common law courts. But that takes training and organizing, and people need the long-term vision. Uh, a friend of mine told me the other day there was another Freedom Rally in downtown Vancouver. And down at the what used to be the courthouse, we used, decades ago we used to hold all our protests there, and they had a, yet another Freedom Rally against the COVID measures, but people stood around and listened to the same old speeches they heard two years ago. And my friend was saying... It was really discouraging because people were just sitting there saying, well, what do we do besides protests? There was no one there to offer an alternative. And it's happening right at the very time that the whole downtown east side of Vancouver is getting cleaned out in a huge way. And I had a long history there working. We documented on the ground the systematic targeting and killing of indigenous women who were part of the what we call them the blue blood, the traditional clan mother line, because traditionally the clan mothers all through the territories across Canada, all over Turtle Island, really, here in North America. They knew who owned the land. They knew where the traditional boundaries were. And so you've got to wipe them out if you want to grab the resources and the lands, like China and China primarily is doing now. They've got death squads operating in, along the Highway of Tears. They're driving the native people off the land to grab the liquid natural gas. It's all being documented, and the Mounties are a big part of that. Well, we need people on the ground now protecting those people. We need to train them how to do it. One of the reasons we set up the Republic is you can't rely on the existing system. It's criminal. It's complicit. And so we need to train our own sheriffs. We need our own peacekeepers going in there to protect those people on the ground. You heard an interview of a number of shows back from uh, Suzanne, one of the Chilcotin elders, who's their nation, the traditional sovereign Chilcotin people in central British Columbia. They're allied with our Republic. And we have an obligation to protect each other. So we, are, we need to get people up there. But they've got to be trained first. They've got to be prepared. Like in the Deep South, you've got to give people strength on the ground to carry on, not just have the protests, because that can build up people's expectations, and then where's the help tomorrow when you need it? So 
We've got to urge people to take part in two things. First of all, we hold citizenship schools where you'll learn the basic principles of what it means to be a sovereign citizen within a bigger republic where the people are in charge, not big money. And secondly, training workshops like civil disobedience workshops, but also how to operate as citizen sheriffs, how to make the arrests, how to take back the power, how to get the police to come over to us, disavow their oath of allegiance to the so-called Crown of England, take it to the Republic and the Constitution. And as part of that, we're now part of a global movement, the Republic Alliance. There's people in 12 countries now who are working against the COVID corporate police state to set up their own common law republics. And I mentioned earlier, one of our brothers in a prison in Denmark, they target people. They target anyone in this movement all the time. If you're not in the controlled opposition group, you're fair game, just like an indigenous person who's not tied into the puppet band council system gets targeted right away. Well, it's like we're all on the Indian reservation, folks. For over 150 years in Canada, you could go to jail if you're a native and you didn't take a shot or refuse medical treatment. Well, they're just doing to all of us now what they did to the have been doing to Native people for many years. It just didn't happen to us. But the genocide is hitting all of us now, folks. And so we have an obligation now. It's in your best interest. Your life can depend on this now. It's not just a good intention, which you can take or leave. It's a matter of survival. You've got to do it because your life depends on it, which it does very much. And, um, and to flag that as part of those workshops and preparing for the new year, um, there's three things I want to remind you of. Three dates, first of all. December 24th, that's the anniversary of the murder of Maisie Shaw, a little Native girl who was kicked down a flight of stairs to her death. Harriet Nahani, who is a Native woman, a lot like Kolya, came forward at the cost of her life, eventually, and talked about witnessing that murder of Maisie Shaw. Well, Maisie Shaw's murder was the first story that ever broke in the Canadian media about the genocide in these so-called residential schools, the death camps, where over half the children died. 60 to 80,000 children. And that reporting, Maisie Shaw's murder, really started our, was really a, a spark. And on December 24th, 25th, it's a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, we're urging people all over the country to start our vigils to occupy and take back these churches because I was made the legal agent of Chief Capilano the traditional elder of the all of the area in Vancouver, gave me the right of legal entry into these churches to peacefully seize them as reparations for their crimes of genocide. We have the legal power to do that. We've done it in the past. It's what forced the apology in Canada, taking that direct action. And so we're going to start that again December 24th, 25th. Second day to remember, of course, January 15th, the eighth anniversary of the proclamation of the Republic. It's our Independence Day. We're going to be doing flag raisings, reclaiming the public spaces, group pledges to the Republic. It's really a beautiful thing to watch. We bring in the bagpipes, we get people to take the pledge, disavowing their citizenship in Canada, although you're not really a citizen in Canada, you're a ward of the state, just like an Indian. Um, take the oath to be sovereign citizens in the Republic of Canada. And thirdly, the date to keep in mind is this February 9th. It's the 25th anniversary of the launching of our movement. Started at a forum in downtown Vancouver we organized, February 9th, 1998, day before my 42nd birthday, and um, now I'm 66, still at it. What else do you do, right, when you're facing systemic evil? But that forum really brought out the truth of these crimes for the first time. So we're going to be doing a teaching on that day. And for any information about any of this, and flyers and help us organize these life-saving actions, 
write to Republic National Council at protonmail.com or write to me personally, Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice at angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Those are the three dates to keep in mind. And they'll be posted, of course, at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates and republicofcanada.org under breaking news. You can see all of our news there. But um, the other three things I want to remind you of is the three R's. It isn't write, reading, writing, and arithmetic, although it's basic education. It's three things to keep in mind, our aims. Resist, reclaim, replace. Resistance is the first step, but it isn't enough. We've got to go to the second step, which is we reclaim it. We reclaim the land. We reclaim our own minds, first of all, and then our neighborhoods. And we reclaim everything taken from us that we've let slip away. And finally, we've got to replace it with our own system of self-governance. It's really a revolution, the kind of grassroots revolution we were talking about and Sister Collier was talking about today. We all got to be hell-bent on change in the inside, and there's nothing to substitute for that fire on the inside that keeps us going. All the talk and all the words in the world isn't going to save the life of one child or one person who stands against this system. We need to start that fire and kindle that fire in ourselves. I remember an, another woman, very much like, like Sister Collier, was a woman called Maggie, a Native woman I knew on the streets, and she, uh, you know, acted for like your kind of how white people see Native people, you know, stumbling around, struggling, homeless. But one night when one of our people, I remember it was years ago, over 10 years ago now, uh, one of our people, called, his name was Trevor, he was a homeless Native guy, he was part of our grassroots, one of our movements there in Vancouver, and they cops grab him, like they always do, and they beat him up and they threw him in the in the cell, in the Maine Hastings right there in Vancouver in the cop shop. Well, when Maggie heard about this, I remember at midnight watching that we had a lot of people outside protesting. They, were, they called out 20 riot cops out surrounding the building. Maggie, dra- this homeless Native woman, she's in her 70s and was like crushed every day of the year life because of the horrible torture she'd gain- gone through in these death camps they call residential schools, Catholic, Anglican, United Church death camps. And there was Maggie dragging a police barrier across Main Street and blocking traffic and defying those cops, saying to their face, you let Trevor out of that prison now. We're not going to let you kill him like you kill our other brothers and sisters. I remember those riot cops were just standing there. They didn't know what to do. And I went over to one of them and I said, you know, you guys better let Trevor out because there was a lot more where she came from. And sure enough, an hour later, they let him out. The power of action, that there's no substitute for people power and soul power. So I want to mention that, hopefully, to inspire all of you to get on board again, because, you know, in times like this, it's easy to get discouraged. We're looking at the Internet, unfortunately, and you see all the power of the enemy and none of our own power. That power is found in the community, face-to-face, hand-to-hand, heart-to-heart. We've got to recover that, friends. So that is, um, I was going to play a song, but we've run out of time. We'll play it next week um, when I'm gone by Phil Oaks, another folk singer from the 60s. And um, I think he was down in Selma as well during the the, the protest there. But uh, next week, of course, we're going to have one of the daughters of, of Colia Clark on to talk about her mom and carrying on the struggle. So please tune in again next Sunday here, bbsradio.com slash stand. You can see all of our shows archived, um, again, at that site. And all of our books and evidence, murderbydecree.com. Write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. And don't forget, folks, it's in your hands. 
we all have the ability to be a, a, a Colia Clark or a Maggie. It's within all of us. And it's just a matter of being resolved and never to give up. So that said, I don't want to in any way detract from the uniqueness of Sister Colia, because in a way there isn't, there'll never be another one like her. And we've got to remember her always and her example of how you never stop. You never give in, you never give up. So please, again, tune in next week and write to us to be part of these upcoming actions, not only in Canada on the West Coast, like I mentioned, but all over the world. We're part of the Republic Alliance. It's uniting people through action on the ground to build the alternative, not to protest the old system because it's, it's done with. It's collapsing. You've got to build a new society in the shell of the old. That's what we're doing. That's what any good community organizer does. That's what Jesus did. And so we'll be back carrying on that struggle next week. Until then, stay strong, stay clear, take heart, and carry on. Uh, thank you. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice.